if you build something where you bring women and people that you admire together and you give them an opportunity and help lift their voices, then you're building something bigger than yourself. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today, I'm here with Jessica Lin. Jessica is co-founder and partner at Workbench, an enterprise-focused venture fund and community in New York City. Congratulations, Jessica. You're killing it. Thank you so much, Sally. I'm so thrilled to be with you today. I'm really interested in hearing all about Workbench. Could you tell us what it is all about and what made you start it? Sure. So we are, as you said, an enterprise VC fund here in New York City. And what we've been really trying to do for the past five years is just completely rethink enterprise VC. And the way we've been doing that is in three ways. One, our team's background is really unique. If you know anything about VC funds, a lot of folks tend to come out of banking or former founders. Our team actually all hails out of corporate IT. So we like to joke that we're the IT to VC team. We totally geek and nerd out on enterprise software. And then the second part is being here in New York City. That's such a key part of our DNA. 52 of the Fortune 500 companies right here in our backyard. So what we've been doing for these past few years is really building this home and this hub to connect what we lovingly call our suits and our hoodies. So all the Fortune (laughs) 500s in our backyard and all these leading enterprise startups, we have a 32,000 square foot space here in the heart of New York. We host over 200 events a year and at this point have made over 25 investments in startups throughout the country. Well, that's amazing. This is so fascinating to me because I've talked a lot about VC funding on this podcast, mostly in the context of the challenges of women raising the funding and kind of the numbers that we see of how female-funded and minority-funded startups struggle to get real funding compared to those started by white men. What attracted you to the VC world? Because that wasn't your, your whole background, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the numbers are not great, right? It's 2% of women who get venture funding. And so my own background, and I love this theme on your series, which is the windy, serendipitous paths that get you to where you are, right? I joke that my own path was Swahili to Cisco. So, (laughs) you know, an undergrad at Harvard, I studied Swahili. I studied African studies, international relations. I was really passionate about international development at that point. I spent every summer in Kenya and Tanzania, and I had really been planning to go down an entire career path in global health. So I actually was accepted into a master's program for public health and ended up senior year taking an engineering class around innovation and interdisciplinary intersections of ideas. And it completely you know, pivoted me, you know, 45 degrees, 180 degrees, and ended up working with this Harvard professor for two years after graduation. I um, helped him launch a design fellowship program for students in Cape Town, South Africa, and, and spent a lot of time with student startups and helping them grow. From there, I actually ended up coming back to Boston and again, and serendipitously, I guess you could say, met my, my future manager at Cisco, who at that time, this was a, a group internally around learning and development and it was an area that I'm really passionate about, right? So I worked out of Boston, but worked with many, many high-performing engineering teams throughout the country 
at Cisco. I got to work on such cool projects. I, I once for a number of weeks wore a GoPro camera on my head <laughs> and wow. embedded myself with the engineering teams and basically follow a bunch of these really impressive teams around to document their agile software development practices. Going from, again, from international development to tech, from there, someone I had actually previously worked with at Harvard was the one who tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, there's this thing called Workbench that's, you know, launching off the ground in New York City. The vision at that point was really the venture fund and also the community. They Mm -hmm. had at that point identified my co-founder, John Lair, to head up the venture fund. They said, we have this space. The Wi-Fi doesn't really work. <laughs> we need you to fill it with some startups and we need to build a community. Would you Would you want to be up for it? And so that's really how I came. And four years ago, my anniversary was just last week, I moved from Boston to New York to co-found Workbench with John Lair, my, my co-founder. Everyone tells me that their career path is winding, but Swahili to Cisco is, is more winding. <laughs> I know, it's a few pivots. A few, I know, when people look at my LinkedIn, they're like, what is this? I'm so lucky to be able to co-found something like Workbench and really redefine it, right? And, and coming in, you know, I didn't look like most other VCs, right? And, and that's something I know you talk about a lot, which is how, you know, what are some of those lessons learned? And for me, it was to really embrace what sets you apart, right? <laughs> it's very easy to think, oh, I don't look like anyone else. I also don't sound like anyone else. And their backgrounds are also different. You know, in four years, I've really been able to embrace what makes me different. And I think what, you know, obviously bring I bring to the table is different from so many others. And you're catching me at a great time because just last week, we uh, wrapped up and, and launched our first ever Navigate 2018 Women in Enterprise Tech Summit. Going back to your point about supporting more and more women founders in the VC space. We co-hosted it with Salesforce Ventures here at Workbench. 250 women, completely sold out, standing room only. Um, We were featured in Wall Street Journal. Uh, They actually put us up on the NASDAQ tower in Times Square. We had 2.6 million impressions on Twitter, which I think just goes to show such demand um, and such a need for this community to to get galvanized and, and get going. That's amazing. And one thing that I've talked about a lot and and think a lot about is, you know, part of the problem is that most of the VCs themselves are white men. And so then they're more able to kind of identify with businesses that serve white male needs. Right. And so, so, you know, there's the, the story not long ago about the breast pumps that couldn't get funded. So a big part of the problem seems to be that there's not enough women and people of color that are VCs. What do you think is the challenge for becoming a VC? I mean, is it about access to raising the funds or, you know, why are there so few women and people of color that are VCs? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something I've thought a lot about. I know, at least here in New York City, what I will say is I I do feel like the ecosystem and the community here is generally very collaborative and very friendly. I know a lot of firms right now, especially, are making a huge push to bring on and attract and recruit and retain great talent from women and and from diverse backgrounds. I think some of at least what I've anecdotally seen is that there's drop-off, let's say, two to four to five years in. And I think a lot of these really talented, smart women 
for whatever reason, then choose to move on to, let's say, an operator role at a startup, right? Or, or take on some other career path. So that is something I think about a lot. I think, why do they not want to, you know, stay in this role and, and become more and more senior? I think there are probably a lot of different reasons internally for that. Um, what I can say, at least here at Workbench, is our team is 50% women and that we think a lot about team and culture, which I, I, you know, used to take for granted. I used to think every VC fund was like this, but I know, especially for John and I, this is such a, an important part of our fund, that team is everything and that growing each person on the team to their own professional growth paths is so, so important. You focus on the future of work, which is something that I've been really interested in. What are you looking at in terms of the future of work? I'm just super interested in that topic. You know, a big part of what drives me and my vision for future of work and, and what I'd like to invest in more and more is really the one thread that has been consistent even through my Swahili to Cisco. Uh, so for the past 10 years now, I've been teaching the GED to adult students. This started back in Boston. I continue to do that even today. On Monday nights, I um, teach at the 1199 SEIU Labor Union Group here in New York. And a big part of that really stems from my own father's story and, and my parents as immigrants coming to this country. You know, my father worked many, many minimum wage jobs, you know, at a gas station, as a, as a busboy and so forth. But he was really lucky to go on to become a software developer and then at 36 to go to law school and become a lawyer, right? And so for him, education was obviously the game changer. And I see just this huge disparity now with so many of my students who, you know, work two to three jobs, right? They have three kids at home. English is their second language. And it is just so, so hard to get ahead. And, and quite frankly, you know, to work... 18-hour days and then expect them to go to school at night, I just don't think is very feasible. And so that's really where I see the biggest disconnect is I get to work in tech with some of the brightest, smartest, hardest working people. And it reminds me on Monday nights that outside of tech, there are some of the brightest, smartest, hardest working as well. People as well working in jobs around us, like janitors, security guards, and so forth. And it's getting harder and harder for them to really provide for themselves, provide for their families. And what uh, has been mind-boggling to me, at least from a VC perspective, is I just, quite frankly, don't think that many people in tech or in Silicon Valley are really thinking about this, you know, minimum wage challenge, probably maybe with the same perspective I am. I think people think, oh, well, robots will come and automate our work. Until then, how, how can we support these people and make sure that they have good jobs to take care of their families and their communities. So that's where I would love to see more deep tech applied to things like, you know, AR, VR and voice and video and biometrics and new ways of reskilling and retraining people to make sure, to your point, that we can stay ahead of how fast tech is changing and how fast tech is changing our jobs. You're talking about retraining people so that they can have skill sets that work in the digital world or? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, well, part of it comes from my own background in policy. I think there's something that needs to be said and done for policy, right? But I think on the other side of it, 
know, how are we thinking about training? Training has been done the same exact way it's been done for hundreds of years, which is in a classroom with pen and paper, right? I mean, nowadays there's some video, there's some MOOCs, but it truly hasn't made a dent. And I think about all these huge advances across video gaming, right? And across how even in entertainment and media, new ways of content getting created and consumed every single day. And I think, why are we not applying this to what is going to be the biggest problem of our generation, of our country, which is taking people who have done a certain work or skill set for a number of years and now realizing that that's no longer going to be that pertinent moving forward? How can we take this same person and essentially reskill and retool them in a way that will help them still stay ahead? Yeah, it seems that tech should have been disrupting education a lot more than it has, right? It's kind of surprising to me that we still have college that costs, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year and all these kind of this huge divide in education when everything should be just available to anyone that has as long as you have a Wi-Fi connection, right? Exactly, exactly. So you invest in companies that are working on these issues? So to date, we, we've invested in companies across enterprise sectors like machine learning, security, infrastructure, and then this area within future of work. So I'll give you a great example of one of our portfolio companies that I think just entirely embodies a lot of our thesis and mindset. Uh, it's a company called Upskill. They're based down in D.C. They produce the software layer for Google Glass. Right. And it's this Google Glass that they put on complex manufacturing lines for workers at Boeing, GE, Walmart, right? any of these large industrials and manufacturing where they have to, let's say, assemble a complex wire harness. And I didn't realize this until you know we looked into this space, but for a lot of these assembly line workers, they're still using a 300-page paper spec book where they're turning a page assembling a part, turning a page, assembling part for hours and hours and days and days on end. Um, and so obviously with this Google Glass, it's a hands-free set, it's voice command, it's an overlay over your workflow, a workstation, so you can see how exactly the, the pieces and the production should be put into place. As you can imagine, production rates have completely shot up, error rates have gone down, and just, you know, when I think about pure employee happiness, right, of how much better your workflow is every day, four or five years ago, even this AR, this, this concept of augmented reality sounds futuristic, right? It sounds like it's out of a movie, but it's clear now with Upskill and a lot of the success they're seeing with these customers that it's very much needed and wanted um, to help, again, augment what people are doing. And that's where I think people aren't going to be displaced by robots entirely tomorrow. So until then, how do we augment them better with tools and platforms and data to do their jobs better? This is all very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to check out the demo. The video is absolutely incredible. They show before and after, and you, you're just mind-boggling. You're like, how can this have been done any other way, right? And that's the piece that I like to push us to think about. It's like things that seem so out there. Are they really that out there? I mean, so much of a, you know, tech is happening and jumping and changing so quickly. And you said that one of the lessons that you've learned is to focus on what sets you apart. Is that kind of the mindset that helps you when you're when you are in largely male dominated areas to just keep powering through? I mean, and could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I think in um, 
in so many of the conferences I go to, right, all the meetings I'm in, all the panels I'm on, it has predominantly been all men, right? And even that's a big part of what we saw even here at Workbench, right? We have about 25 startups that work out of our space. We host the 200 events a year I mentioned. And five years ago, I thought, okay, you know, we're brand new. So of course, we're going to see far more men than women, right? It was about 80% men, 20% women at all of these events, at all of these at all these startups and even actually the corporates that we're talking to. And up until even last year, we just didn't see a meaningful change, right? Like it wasn't getting better. Um, That was really the impetus and the genesis for why we hosted this huge Women Enterprise Tech Summit just last week. It was to really showcase um, this community that has been growing, but really needs to be brought together and, and ignited, if you will. And a big part of what I think, quite frankly, is my, my hypothesis with enterprise software is that it's not that sexy, right? I mean, compared to consumer brands and retail, people don't get that excited where waking up every day thinking about data management. Um, so how can we create a community that is really inclusive, that quite frankly is accessible and fun, right? Because not everything in enterprise software has to be so serious. And that's really why we launched that Navigate Summit last week to get women inspired to bring in some phenomenal speakers and, and rally this community together. Huh, that's interesting. So maybe the fact that it's not so sexy or exciting makes it less appealing to women. Is the flip side of that that men are perfectly fine with the stuff that's not that exciting? <laughs> I don't know. That's a great question. I, I wonder if a big part of it is that, yeah, I think a lot of these founders that I see, men and women right, of enterprise startups, have worked at a large company before, right? You almost need to have worked at a large company, again, to know some of these pain points to then build a product for it. So one great example is a, a startup we recently just invested in called Uplevel Security. They're based right here in New York City, and the founder and CEO, Liz Meta, is a woman, um, spent many, many years at Akamai, very, very technical, and just has such an incredible product vision. But it was because of her time at Akamai that she saw some of these pain points within cybersecurity, then married with her own passion for this space around graph databases and so forth, that um, has put together a really phenomenal team and, and really compelling vision and product that sets her apart from so many others in this space. So it's like almost a pipeline issue of not enough women in enterprise to start off with to see the needs that corporations have and start the companies based on those needs. Well, I want to extract them, right? Like I'm, I know you are all in here in some of these large companies. I know you have this experience, right? So we just need to extract you out of there and give you that injection and that boost that you want to start a startup, right? And Liz herself, she, she was one of our speakers at the summit. And she clearly is highly, highly competent and very exciting person. But even for her, she said herself, she felt like she almost needed someone to give her that permission to start this company, which just boggles my mind. Because when I meet her, I'm like, how could you, you know, she's so, so impressive. But, you know, that was something she really battled that she was like, I didn't have that confidence. It was actually another startup founder, a, a man who, you know, said, hey, let's, that sounds like a great idea. And I'd love to be helpful. And that was really for her that light bulb moment. And I think that is, quite frankly, quite common. So the more that we can help be that light bulb moment and, and reach out and say, we'd love to help you, then, then we can hopefully see these numbers go up and see more phenomenal women like Liz start companies. 
Yeah, that confidence gap is something that I've been drilling down on this whole time that I've had this podcast, and it's something that is so frustrating, um, especially mm-hmm. when you have people that are just so competent. And what is this needing permission? I don't want to blame us for it, right? That's With all yeah. the things that I talk about, it's like not our fault because we've been probably socialized that we know we need to, mm-hmm. to get permission to do things. But how do we get rid of that? I mean... Or how do we, until we can get rid of it, like you said, be the ones out there granting the permission, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the things that we've started doing here at Workbench is we created this master database of women founders of enterprise startups when we were planning this conference. And I was realizing how hard it was to find all these women. So we put together this master database. It's open to the public And it's about 150, 155 founders of venture-backed enterprise startups. So when when I presented it to the conference last week, we had 250 women in the room. I said, if you think about it, that means there are fewer founders of enterprise company startups that are women than there are even in this room, right? And that, I think, really illustrated the point that there should be more. I thought there would be more, and there's not more. <laughs> but you're also talking about venture-backed, right, which goes back to that other problem that we talked about early on, that it's harder to get the venture. It's harder to get the venture funds. Yeah, exactly. It's just, to me, it's a no-brainer, right? When you when VC funds then have dinners or host conferences and panels and, you know, there's press opportunities, right? There can no longer be an excuse that they could, can't find these founders, right? We have this database. It's for everyone to see. And so hopefully it helps open up opportunities. That's great. Yeah, we need that in so many different areas, I think. And then you need the impetus to, for people to go seek that out and remember that they need to reference it, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) It sounds like you've done so many cool things in your career. What stands out to you of of things that you're particularly proud of? Well, the reason why I keep going back to this Navigate Summit is, you know, we host almost 200 events a year. We've hosted large, large conferences. But this one, to me, really illustrated the point that if you build something where you bring women and people that you admire together and you give them an opportunity and help lift their voices, then you're building something bigger than yourself, right? And and that to me is the ultimate privilege. And that's why I so admire your podcast because you are giving a platform and amplitude to so many voices and stories that most people haven't heard of. An example of a speaker that we had was a managing director from Bank of America, Rosa Ramos-Quak. And she is one of the highest ranking Latina women on Wall Street. And she shared her story of growing up in the Bronx, right? And a very similar background that her family also um, were immigrants and, you know, working minimum wage jobs. And and she shared, you know, the ups and downs and loops and left-hand turns and how she got to be where she was, where she is today. And I think her honesty about some of those paths and journeys she's taken was, was phenomenal. Our closing speaker of the day is Therese Tucker, who's the CEO and founder of a company called Blackline. And quite frankly, even I didn't even know her story. And I'm in, I'm in enterprise, <laughs> but she's one of the very few women that has founded and, and been CEO and led a company public, an enterprise company public. And she wrote some of the original code for this company, right? And and so stories like this, I just I just want to help screen them them out because they're so they're so important. And and until even other women in the enterprise space hear them, right? We need to get this out and, and make sure people are learning from them and then also activating on this front. 
Yeah, I think it's been a big change over the last couple of years, or we're starting to hear more and more stories, right? Like, I actually started this podcast, it's been almost two years now, and I had such a hard time finding stories about women who were excelling in their careers, especially especially, um, women of color. I just couldn't find them. It was crazy. And I feel like there's been a big push on a lot of different fronts to put those stories out there. And it just makes me so happy because the women have been there all along. Exactly. And we need to celebrate these stories. Yeah, exactly. We just need to I, I uncover them, right? And that's part of the database. It's just like they're there. Right? <laughs> they're here, but we need to find them. <laughs> I saw the database. And to me, it seemed like a lot. But I guess in the whole scale of... Just to clarify for our listeners, by enterprise founders, you're talking about startup founders who are doing, is it only software or tech? It's generally software. Yeah, and the way we define enterprise, at least, is that it's it's software that you're building and selling into a very large customer. And, and for us, specifically at WorkBench, we generally mean the Fortune 500. So you're selling potentially Salesforce, like Salesforce, you know, is the ultimate enterprise software company, right? They sell into very large companies. They also sell into smaller ones, right? And so that tends to be mid-market or or small, medium-sized businesses. But generally when we say enterprise, we mean a B2B business-to-business product. And in a lot of ways, it's a very different beast than, let's say, a consumer product or a brand, right? Which I think women have actually made really, really good headway, and especially here in New York City. I mean, there are some really, really remarkable brands here. Glossier is one of them. You know, Stitch Fix last year with Katrina Lake took the company public. These are all brands and names you hear of and know and and we as women are consumers of. But it's a lot harder to name the top five B2B (laughs) software startups started by women. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of those businesses are, you know, it's a whole lot of financial opportunity that women are missing out on, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There are studies that have shown that enterprise software returns and exits on average are a lot higher than consumer ones. So, you know, everyone knows the Facebooks, everyone knows the Snapchats, but we tend to not know other companies like Nutanix and MuleSoft and AppDynamics. Right. When people aren't even aware that these fields exist, then the path for kind of like see it to be it is even murkier, right? It's like, not only do I not see the female startups of these companies, I don't see the companies themselves. Exactly, exactly. So we're trying to do a twist on it. And again, our teams try, we try to have fun, right? We, every year we do a huge Friendsgiving lunch with 200 plus people, one year um, videotape mannequin challenge. I mean, this is just like examples of like, let's have fun with it, right? Let's make this an accessible field. It doesn't have to all be only white men, right? And we can, we can have fun with it and rethink it. So there's one question I'd like to ask all of my guests, and that is, what's something that you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting out in your career? Yeah, I love that question so much. And that's something we actually asked all of our speakers to talk about last week as well. I think the what I, what I mentioned earlier about embrace what sets you apart, you know, I spend a lot of time earlier probably trying to be like everyone else, right? <laughs> because when times are hard, you want to be like everyone else. So really making sure that you that you don't do that. <laughs> and then two, and this is just something I've, I've thought about more recently, is I feel like a lot of young people, young women, really want to be strategic and planful about their careers, right? And they should, right, to some extent, to 
to know where you want to go, right, and, and meet the right people to get there. But I'd actually almost say that there are some things that you can't plan for and that are also a beautiful part of the journey, right? I mean, if you had asked me in college, there's no way I would have ever said I'd be a VC, right? I would never have been able to, even last year or even last month, told you that we would have seen our faces on the NASDAQ tower in Times Square. I mean, there's just some things that that happen as a result of obviously a lot of hard work, but then opportunities come up and, and you want to make sure that you're open enough to be able to go to where those opportunities are, even if they don't fit within your master plan. How did you know what opportunities to take? Like, how did you decide, yes, this is what I'm going to do next? The one piece of advice I share with every woman, right, because a lot of, a lot of people come and ask me about whether or not they should start, uh, join a startup or start a startup. And my, my one advice always is to work with good people, right? Like that is your North Star. If you work with good people, then no matter if the company pivots or your role changes or the product changes, you'll always be learning, right? And you'll always be supported and people will have your back. And that by far has been the North Star in my career. I mean, John, my co-founder, I, I could literally not ask for a more supportive co-founder. And, and for everyone I've worked with previously, I've been so, so lucky. So I think if you follow good people and you work with them and, and you work hard, you'll, you'll always be um, on the right path to some great opportunities down the line. I love that advice. Well, Jessica, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you today. For our listeners to follow you, keep up with what you're up to, where should they check you out on the web? You can check me on the web on Twitter. I'm at Jersey Jess. And also, I highly recommend everyone check out Workbench. We have a lot of great content and events coming down the pipeline, specifically focused on supporting more women in enterprise tech. We actually are launching a playbook out of this summit that we just hosted. And I love your your playbook, Sally, of the seven actionable steps. So I'd love to share some of mine too in the future. That sounds great. I'll check that out as well. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Sally. Take care. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.